Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Evian Gordon. Dr. Gordon is chairman of the board, founder, and chief medical officer of Total Brain, a mental health monitoring and support platform that has over a million registered users. Dr. Gordon has more than 30 years of experience in human brain research and is considered one of the originators of the field of integrative neuroscience. He's also authored more than 300 peer-reviewed publications. In the episode, Dr. Gordon shares a framework for starting or stopping any habit, the power of making one change at a time, what surprised him most in his extensive research on the brain and habit change, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. Did you know that alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles? That's how they're able to sneak in sugar and other additives to their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come up with a solution. Their natural wines are lab-tested to ensure they're sugar-free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wine, even the top-rated expensive conventional wines can give me headaches and just make me feel overall gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, Visit dryfarmwines.com slash the health investment or click through the link in the show notes. And one final thing, if you've been dieting for years, but nothing has helped you keep the weight off long term, I'm so glad you're hearing this right now because outside of hosting this podcast, I spend my time helping people lose weight for good in both my group and one-on-one coaching programs. Unlike extreme restrictive diets that only provide short-term results, I help you master the skill of everything in moderation so you can finally lose 5 to 50 pounds permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings and less snacky between meals, have steady energy throughout the day, and show up as the healthiest, happiest version of yourself. To learn more about my programs, visit thehealthinvestment.com or connect with me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. All right, let's hear from Dr. Gordon. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Gordon. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Oh, thank you, Brooke. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm so fascinated by brain research. I don't think I could have ever 
handled that path in life. I don't know if I have the scientific brain myself enough for that type of study, but I really love reading about it and hearing from experts all about it. And I would love if you could share with us what led you to devote your life to researching the brain and creating Total Brain. Sure. Um, I'll be brief, but it was a very strange journey for me because um, I was I was born in, in South Africa and went to a wonderful university there called University of Witwatersrand, where they had the, um, they were the sort of holders of the fossils, the fossil skulls that... Um, showed that you know the cradle of humanity you know came out of came out of africa and my P, my phd supervisor i went through the science degrees in medicine in south africa he looked after those fossils and my my phd was in in serum lipids in cardiology and it was at a wonderful time where the heart you know was so all these new discoveries and and um and and so one day he he said to me would you like to see the the missing link the fossil that was the first fossil that showed, um, you know, that human the human brain has trebled in size in the last five million years, and 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 I said, of course, like sure, and he 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 put that original fossil. Her name was Miss Pleas. Pleas stands for Plesianthropus, which is southern ape, mm. into my hands, and and I suddenly held in my hands a a bipedal ape, basically, but it was kind of hominid for the first time that had. That, that struck me that here I was doing my my PhD, which I loved. I, I could foresee my career as a cardiologist, researching the brain, and I'd, I'd been I'd, I'd been through all the science degrees, and I was doing medicine, so I could foresee myself as doing you know cardiology and cardiac rehab, and and I suddenly hit me that here I was holding in my hand a fossil that had shown the trajectory from, you know, Australopithecus to Homo habilis to Homo erectus to humans, trebling in size. No other species had done that. And I thought, wow, like this is my future, the brain. And so I emigrated to the United States and set up, uh, um, I first came to Sydney uh, and set up, I was sort of allowed to be the head of of a brain institute in Sydney called the Brain Dynamic Center. And by luck, had the CEO back me to um, to bring together scientists from different disciplines, psychologists, psychiatrists, neurologists, physicists, and um, look at the brain as a system. And I collaborated with the Human Brain Project in Washington. Um, Steve Koslow was the head and became a close friend. And we, we were sort of started to put together, I put together the first standardized international database on the brain. Um, in 1983, uh, that will date me, and um, and it survived mm-hmm. and and became the basis for then setting up a company in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, anyway, uh, and in America, on the brain online to do online assessments and 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 and, and sort of distilling from this database um, what we could learn about the brain that could be applied online to help people with mental health and well-being and peak performance and and that was sort of the simple snapshot of the trajectory from <clears throat> from South Africa and, and the cradle of humanity to uh, to Sydney and this amazing opportunity to set up a brain institute uh, with collaborators around the world and the first database a standardized database on the brain and then to living in San Francisco now it's just been wonderful and uh, just working with uh, Total Brain and um, and all their big corporate and other clients uh, in, in sort of mental health um, and well-being. So that's the sort of snapshot journey 
that I had. It was like a conversion at the mount for me, it felt like, but I've never regretted it. And it's been a long, long journey, a long, arduous journey that continues every day. But it's a huge privilege for me to be uh, working with so many people around the world in the brain space. Wow. As you were describing yourself holding that fossil, I could picture it. I mean, what a cool, cool moment that nobody gets to have, right? That's such a special, unique privilege that you got to have back then. Yeah, it really was, you know, uh, Brooke. And I suppose I was rather surprised at the way it hit me because I loved cardiology. And by the way, we are currently now, ironically, just to maybe finish the journey quickly, that I now work with the American Heart Association and we've just built an online product on lifestyle medicine because the, the cardiologists of the world have realized that stress is a big component of cardiac disease and so is depression. So I, I, we, I've been working for the last year um, uh, with, uh, with, with a, t- a team uh, and, and uh, Jennifer Franklin built a, a product online for us on Kajabi. And, and so the point is American Heart Association, who are really the leaders of information about cardiac, you know, the Framingham study that changed medicine, have now embraced the brain-body connection. But that skull, when I held it in my hands, I couldn't believe that it was so obvious to me that my destiny was with the brain, when at that time, brain science was a dirt road and cardiology (laughs) was the golden highway. But anyway, fortunately, the brain and the heart are coming together for real. And uh, it's a wonderful time. Wow. I guess my next question, I work a lot with people. I'm a nutrition coach on habit change and, you know, not just in terms of behaviors, always in terms of mindset and all these shifts we have to make as we get healthier. I'm wondering, what would you say is the most important thing we need to know about how the brain functions in order to help us understand why change can be so difficult? Yeah, what, what, that is the key question. Because it is kind of surprising that change is so difficult, different, difficult, even when people can see the benefits. So why is that? Well, I think it is a brain issue. And I think it's the biggest insight I have seen, Brooke, from our database and from the science in the last 40 years. And it is very simple. Everybody knows it, that our brain gets hijacked by unconscious negative thoughts and experiences. Now, why, why would that happen? Well, it would appear that, and we've got 30 big laboratories around the world that have been studying this for a long time. And we were one of the first groups, the science team, there's a wonderful science team underpinning everything I've just said. And the science team um, have found that within a fifth of a second, our brains are constantly looking to our environment and looking at what is threatening to us. Because after all, the brain is a trebled in size in that journey, that amazing journey, the human brain, um, and all brains actually. Um, Primarily, it's about safety. So when in a fifth of a second, you're scouring and looking for threat, um, and that is our default state. We are about safety first. So if we're about safety first, then what is it that makes us feel safe? And change is not safe unless you can guarantee that you're going to win. So the point to me that I see is that the whole science of unconscious processes, which is sort of people go, oh, yeah, that's just a big black hole. Who knows about that? Well, actually, we know quite a lot. Obviously, there's a 
huge amount about the brain and 85 billion highly interconnected neurons. We don't know. But there's a surprising amount that has become clear, and that is that there is this process. You can actually measure it. We have measured it and shown how fear operates 30,000 of a second faster than other emotions. So we see the evidence. This is not just a concept. It is a very real process. And it explains, in my mind anyway, and the evidence points to the fact that if something doesn't feel safe, it is very hard to get the brain automatically to buy in. So you've got the hijacking of negative thoughts and previous experiences where you failed kicking in, but also yeah. you've, you've got to see the benefit that can counteract that, that can be strong enough to in the moment get a sense of, okay, I, I can do that. And so, yes, people get sort of information and that doesn't change anybody. It's helpful, but I've never seen people change based on information. You've got motivation, but that's transient. I mean, it's wonderful. People get super motivated and they go, yeah, I'm going to change. But they don't change and because it doesn't last. And then you have got to have a framework. You, you, the people that I see that change and the evidence around the world of what does change is people who have a clear, simple, unambiguous framework that helps them integrate the sort of science of habit that can help challenge this kind of automatic negative hijack that people fear failure and they're not going to buy into something for real and change their lives, which feels, you know, you're moving your status quo now. You, you spend a lot of time building your habit of whatever you're doing. And sometimes those habits are not healthy, but they're what you're used to. So you've got to come up with something pretty smart and strong and clear and simple and specific to basically counteract that automatic negative hijack. So that's the essence of what I see, that the deepest insight about the brain is that we are driven by unconscious biases, negative thoughts, and hijacks. And there's a virtue in understanding that. You don't have to be a scientist about it, but at least having a real awareness of it, looking to a little bit of science, and, and know that it's not just some dark hole process. It's for real. It's what shapes your life. So you might as well learn a little bit about it and then find a strategy to hijack the hijack to kind of really get some control back into our lives. So that's that's my sort of summary. I know that may sound too, too kind of conceptual, but it's not for me in terms of the evidence that I see or from our research team around the world. There's something very, very difficult, but very cool and insightful and, 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 and doable, tractable if you don't do it in a sort of woolly manner. It all makes perfect sense to me, especially after working with a bunch of clients and seeing how much of a struggle habit change can be, and for myself as well. Uh, so I appreciate you explaining it so thoroughly. Um, and it it's good for me to hear because it also inspires me, you know, as I'm helping these clients to speak more about that piece of it, that if it's feeling difficult to make this change, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not different from the next person. You know, if they're making a change, maybe they have just conceptualized this or they're focusing on small wins or more specific behaviors or whatever it is. Um, and you can do those things too. I think it's really a hopeful message that we can hijack our brain, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I believe it is. And you've put it beautifully. And that's exactly right. 
that people, there is hopefulness, but the hopefulness is predicated on a bit of a framework and insight about the brain and a specific pathway to do it. And, and it becomes a little less hopeful when people buy into superficial shortcut um, triumph of marketing over substance, um, mm. then it's kind of becomes a little bit of a challenge. And, and in fact, uh, I'm also part of the American Institute of Stress and, um, and what they're saying there and what I think is so spot on, um, just to make it concrete, to give you an example, uh, Dr. Cindy Ackerell, who's the editor of the wonderful magazine, actually, that the American Institute of Stress put out, she says, we are getting tired of the should lists, that you should eat better, sleep more, exercise. It's actually quite a stress to people because mm. it gets to your point that why is habit so hard? And part of it is it's unhelpful to be bombarded with these well-intentioned, obvious sometimes should lists, but often they're marketing should lists and they're unhelpful because they have kind of a more sort of like, you know, marketing industry type of should lists. And, um, and so I think it's, you know, the big virtue is to start ending or trying to limit the should lists and go to the how lists, you know, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. Not just what should you do. And so I think you, you, your, your message of hope is absolutely correct and you put it really powerfully. And I think there's cause for that to be true. Is the how list, if someone's listening and let's say they have a New Year's resolution of weight loss or eating better, is the how list really then just coming up with, a, let's say, one small specific action you'll take for a period of time and waiting for that thing to become effortless before you add something else, just moving slowly and thinking small in terms of I guess I'm thinking like overhauling your entire lifestyle overnight on some new diet. Yeah, that's greatly put. And that's exactly the spot. And um, would you mind if I just spend a minute, maybe just being a little more specific about that point? Is that okay? I would love that. Yeah. So that's exactly right. And so it's what I call the power of one. And the power mm. of one is first and foremost to focus on one thing. Like, so it's almost like, can you build a framework that works for you? That is how to actually hijack your hijacks, but choose one thing. And as we know, um, and of course, you being a, a person in nutrition focused and expert in this, that exactly what you said is so, such a great summary that we know that it's all about the power of one is you cannot make the one small enough because the brain doesn't operate in general principles. The brain doesn't go, oh, I want to be more positive, so I'm going to become more positive. I mean, we know there's a litany, or I'm going to lose, uh, you know, 20 pounds in, in, in three months. We know that there is a litany of challenges to that. When you aim too high, make it too big. So it's all about tiny steps. Some of the books you'll read is, you know, the, the, the atomic habits, and that's exactly right. You cannot make the steps small enough but if you do tiny steps small steps every day they coalesce into something big so so what i did just to give you a quick like a one minute summary uh, about so what is a framework well firstly it starts so i call it uh, uh, this is not too sort of self self-serving but i i have sort of distilled this over the past 40 years into what's just so there's a framework if people want to see it specifically it's, it's the gordon habit success 
framework. And what it is, is, is this. It's, it's you've got to firstly look at your why, your what, and your how. Like, why are you doing this? If that's not clear, it's not going to happen. And then specifically that targeting of, so let's say it's to eat less, but it's, it's to me about nutrition. It's not just what you eat, but why you eat. So in my case, I'd focus on the stress of stress eating because I'm a stress eater and it's been a real challenge for me to not be hijacked by the after work feeling like I deserve to have some inappropriate sugar high. And, uh, and so it's the what specifically are you trying to change? And in my case, it's stress eating. And then the how, and the how is just, you know, A to E, it's, it's, it's a couple of really simple, six really simple factors. And the first is to become familiar with the basics of habit change. You know, the fact that less is more, that these small, this, this granular aim low and very targeted is, is for real. And that any change is success and that your first step is critical and that you want to be ready to change. And you can test yourself whether you're ready to change because you don't want to try and change when you're not ready. Then maybe the big change is to just move one step closer to changing. So that's A. B is what I call PARs, P-A-Rs, that is prompts, actions, and responses. And the prompt is really, as we all know, find something you're already doing. Like in my case, when I have um, my last sip of coffee, that's my prompt to go and do my action for stress reduction, which is training very small steps. In my case, I do uh, what on Total Brain, for those who have access to Total Brain, um, uh, breathing at six breaths a minute because there's evidence that that has particularly powerful impact, six breaths a minute. And there's beautiful prompts and stuff we use on Total Brain to prompt people at breathing at six breaths a minute. So. Finish the cup of coffee is the prompt. My action is a small step training of breathing at six breaths per minute. And, and then my reward, the R, and the reward is, I, you know, I'm an extrovert, so I sort of give myself a positive thought um, that's going, okay, you're winning. And that secretes, you know, dopamine, and then I go and tell somebody about it, and that secretes oxytocin. So that's the P-A-R. And that's crucial to draw on the things you're already doing so you'll do them. Because it's not what we want to do that matters. It's what we will do. And it's shocking how quickly people don't get into their own little repetitive routine. And the C is the repetition, the small steps. And those small steps are just the business. It's not a big, it's not complicated. You look at any peak performer, they're masterful at repetition of driving in the new neural network. So it's not about concepts. It's about brain rewiring. Neural networks mm. that fire together, wire together. So that's the C is the small steps. And then D is the deliberateness. Be deliberate in your practice. It's the difference between experts and novices. It's the key to really succeeding, which is be present. Like what's the point of going through the motions? Do you think your neural networks are going to wire when it's you're just sort of going through the motions? And it's like, you know, when you speak to professional coaches and should the same with nutrition for you but if you take a health gym form it's better to do one push-up with form be present and be deliberate than like i used to do which is 20 push-ups like yeah you just go through the motion so it's that's the that's it and the last two are really the power of visualization and affirmation um we all know that you know many people who change they put pictures on their fridge and on their phones and it's real it's it's the brain can be nudged all day and I would urge your listeners, and they probably have, you know, to read the two key books in the nudge industry, which is Thinking Fast and Slow 
uh, and a book called Nudge. And they are brilliant. They really help see that these tiny little things can really stop the hijacks or reverse the hijacks, nudge the hijacks, which are just brain networks. And then affirmations are just another form of that, you know, having a simple message to yourself that you repeat, repeat, repeat. It just nudges you into a positive frame of mind and, and on, keep on track. And lastly, and by no means least, is measurement. Because if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So you want to measure, how many times did I do this today? What percentage of my 50,000 thoughts today did I actually, did I change one thought? Did I actually do it? How many times did I do it today? And then, of course, on Total Brain, we have actual measurements that people can track how well they're doing. And then we have 30-day challenges, um, you know, which we find super helpful. for. But then last but not least, on the 31st day, you want to do the real business, which is, okay, I've done 30 days. I've got a new habit. It's formed. Um, it should start forming, actually, by the seventh day. By 20, it's pretty pretty in there. And by 30 days, you'll have a new neural network in your brain for the tiny step. And then the real challenge, which is to transfer it into your lifestyle. So, you know, whether it's for stress eating or whether it's for losing weight or whether it's for um, any sort of mental health challenge, negative to positive thinking, um, or whether it's with the American Heart Association, we're changing calm, move, eat, and connect. It's all the same principles. If you don't like uh, my habit success plan, go look at BJ Fogg or any of the other wonderful experts in the science of habit. And, um, and they're all the same in my view. And they all encompass these simple factors that I've tried in, 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 in a couple of minutes to distill. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I love that you mentioned so many of those great books. I'll put links to them in the show notes. Atomic Cabots is one of my personal favorites. Right. <laughs> I feel like I'm a shill for James Clear at this point. Yeah, I no, just constantly... I, and I love, I, love B, I love them all, but I love BJ Fogg. Yeah. I love him too. Oh, and, but they're great books because they really help distill. Some people, there's a lot of information in them. So again, I just keep coming back to the power of one. Like find yeah. what works for you. I love the power of top three rather than top 20. Um, but mm-hmm. in, at the end of the day, if you do one thing, properly you've changed your life you're literally beginning to choose yourself I think that's such a key word there that you said properly it's the whole idea of quantity versus quality like you were saying with the 20 push-ups versus the one and I think it's just counter-cultural in a lot of ways because this isn't something that we're hearing maybe enough of you know, slow down and focus on one thing versus do all of the things. I think our messaging in our culture is more the latter of do more, more, more. But I know I'm always speaking to what you've been saying. And I guess I'm glad that you're confirming that this is the right message to be giving, but just go back to James Clear says getting 1% better every day or even every week, right? It's just, let's narrow it down to the smallest, easiest thing we can do and do that instead of trying to tackle something huge. Yes. And I couldn't put it better than that. So I won't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned goal setting and measuring success. Is there a certain way you recommend that people set a goal for themselves in terms of the language or 
you know, how they're phrasing it? Yeah, look, I think that's a great other segue to to goal setting because people want to set goals because they want to feel like they're winning and they can. And again, I'd say let's open that entire door to goal setting, but take the same principles we've just been um, sharing here, Brooke, which is um, small steps. So there are two things about goal setting. So you cannot make the goal small enough. Like, can I do my one? So let's start at the beginning. Can I do what is the one thing I'm going to do? When am I going to, what's my power? What's my prompt, my action, my response? When am I going to do it? Just take out a piece of paper if you don't want to do it in any way fancy and just put down days one to 30 and say, when are you going to do it? Times during the day. Now you started a goal set for a power of one, small step, targeted, focused thing that you're going to change. So in my case, stress eating, particularly at the end of the day. Um, did I do my, my stress training straight away in the morning? How many times during the day did I do it? So that when the hijack occurred, which is I get home after a stressful day in the brain world and I go, I deserve to have, you know, mm-hmm. processed food and all the, the junk stuff that's going to, the SOS, the sugars and the oils and the salt that are going to hijack my brain because that's what I've been conditioned in my early life to soothe me and I deserve soothing and I'm going to have it. And I and and now it turns out I'm I'm actually a vegan now, and it's just mm-hmm. a joy to actually feel you know that I can hijack the hijacks that I I don't I can soothe myself, but now it's with foods that I love and I'm a bit more thoughtful about it. Look, sometimes I feel like oh to heck with that, and I have my sort of debauched food days, but but it's but and I'm fine with that. But I, I just right. it's, it's so that's the goal setting, and then but then there's the second part. So there's what I call in the moment goal setting and tracking it and let's just talk about 30 days and then day after day 31 can you track it each month to see that you're transferring it into a lifestyle but that's the in the moment and then there's in the long run so that what I mean by that is that well why don't you measure your stress in my case for stress eating so I go to total brain I go to the little assessment there it's a simple assessment and I check not just what is my stress which it checks pretty well But I also look at how does that stress affect my other brain capacities because stress is the key. For behavior change, if you do not have control over your stress, it's far, far harder to stick with Mm. anything, whether it's on the mental health side or the well-being or the peak performance. So, So I'd say the measurement is critical in terms of goal setting in the moment and in the long run and also to keep it simple so you're not doing super complicated stuff that you're not going to unlikely to stick with unless you're a sports professional or something. So, so they would be the two issues of goal setting, same principles, same context of small, but do make it what you will track and measure rather than what you think you should track. So it's the same idea of getting rid of the should lists, get rid of what you think you should do and start focusing on what you will do, but really measure and track. You can't, and measure, track, and transfer, the, the point number F in the model, in the framework that I outlined, is probably the second most important thing. The most important thing that I've seen for, um, for habit change is winning. There's nothing success breeds success. It's that if people can see the benefit and just feel that moment, like I call it less than 60 seconds, in 60 seconds, you should be able to feel that dopamine reward hit in your brain every day. 
And every time you train, because if you train immersively and you do a par and you give yourself a little reward at the end. So I think it's rewards that are the key chemical cocktail. And it is the measurement that builds at the, through repetition, the sort of rewiring of the neural network, the proteins that connect the new neurons that'll hijack the hijack. Mm. So don't be averse to patting yourself on the back. And not quite <laughs> the contrary, be open to, and if you're an introvert, you may want to just have a nice little thought that'll be just as powerful as an extrovert like me giving myself a fist pump and pack and, and a pat with both hands on the back of my hand. Yeah. It's the same mechanism, you know? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's not the it's this it's not the style, it's the substance of just becoming your own brain coach. I love other coaches, but I think at the end of the day, it's an inside job. If mm. you do not become your own coach of your own brain it's hard to imagine that an external coach can can in some way do everything better they may be able to help you enormously with certain things but ultimately it's an inside job that you can should and will want to own yourself and choose yourself and that to me is the greatest self-efficacy and joy of this entire thing is that we can befriend our brains we can understand the basics of Brain 101 and we can implement the, the power of one and the, the sort of simple types of, you know, habit success plans that are summarized. I'd love to know if there's any piece of research or something you've learned about the brain that surprised you most over all of your years of this study. Yeah, look, that's a great question. There's a lot, but I'll try and think of the one. Of, in, in, in what area or what category would you think would be most impactful for, for, for your listeners? Since we're talking about habit change, maybe sticking with that, if there is one. Okay. I suppose, Brooke, the thing that surprised me the most is who are the people who actually do change? So, you know, as an integrative standardized international database that's what we try and look at who are these people like why is it that like 20 percent of people do change and 80 percent just will find ways to self-sabotage or just not care or they're not ready so i suppose that's been my biggest shock that firstly uh, that it is and i'm now talking about people who will go be to the trouble of linking in I mean, we have like a million people who've done the total brain uh, sort of platform totalbrain.com and and by the way there's a free there's a free access for people who want to trial it it's totalbrain.com forward slash consumer trial but but the point is that so just looking at the evidence of what we've seen and what's fascinated me is that okay who are these people and i suppose what i've seen is that just the the tremendous derail of stress i just think that stress Stress and inflammation, which is hugely caused by chronic stress, is to me the biggest surprise of the extent to which, and I suppose it gets back to that original insight about the brain that I saw, which is that um, we get hijacked unconsciously in a fifth of a second. So when you start unpacking that book and you go, okay, what causes stress? Well, firstly, we know from 
1400 twin study that there's a big percentage of stress that's genetic. Well, you know, genes are not our destiny, but we ignore them at our peril. So first thing is, you may want to get onto a 23andMe or map my genome and just check out your, check out your stress genes. But more importantly, is you can just check out yourself, number one. Number two is, what kind, of, what kind of bonding pattern did you have with your mother? Like, was it secure? Was it uh, you know, not? And you, you start building up, you know, and a very simple question I always ask about that's related to stress is, are you basically a negative or a positive person? It's very interesting. I haven't met anybody, Brooke, when I asked them this simple question. On a scale of one to 10, um, how do you deal with threat? Are you, a one is the worst you can be, so do you magnify threat? Or do you go, um, no, there's a, everything, you know, I'm positive about it. I, I deal with it effectively, you know, to be closer to a 10. And I suppose the reason why that's interesting to me is 15% of people in our database are strongly negative. And 15% mm. of people are strongly positive. So I suppose the deep insights to me are that whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or whether you've got a genetic load or whether you've had tough conditioning, like some people have early trauma, it's tough. That pushes people, obviously, and understandably. But all of this can be modifiable. If you So the, 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 the stress insight was the biggest insight that I've seen. And the biggest positive insight that I've seen is that all of this is very modifiable. New neural network, neural networks that fire together really do wire together. And however, it just requires the constraint, as it is, of reality of biological and scientific and brain dynamics reality, that you just approach it like you would, you know, if you were studying, you know, basically any other expert, anything else that you wanted to be an expert in, and who doesn't want to become an expert in themselves? It's just that people get hijacked along the way, which is kind of the ultimate irony. You may have already tackled this one, but I'm always interested when I'm interviewing an expert like yourself as well to hear are there any big myths that people are still perpetuating? Maybe even other people who are calling themselves habit experts. Um, any myths that you wish we would all just stop believing today? Yeah, I think the big myth in my view is that information is power. It's not. Mm. It's actually, I think it's disempowering. Information without specific action in my view, is one of the myths that I think have been unhelpful. Information alone is necessary, but not sufficient to generate new habits. I'd say that's mm -hmm. the biggest myth. Because people are, you know, we, we get bombarded by an entire industries with huge vested interests in giving us information, the whole media industry, social media, um, magazines, it's, um, I would say, the biggest myth is that. And these wonderful personal stories of people, anecdotes are great, but without the scientific distillation that everyone is not the same and that these mm. are the factors you may want to consider. And, and, and then, of course, we live in an era where information has be, itself has been perverted dramatically in terms of reality. So we need to be cautious about just information in general, where it's coming yeah. from, who are the vested interests who are supplying it, uh, what is their goal. And I'm going to get skeptical in anything that just gets, you know, 
becomes exhausting, but it is worthwhile to at least uh, look at the possibility that information alone is necessary but insufficient without a clear, actionable way of how to use it and what's realistically possible in using mm-hmm. it. So I think that all the other myths are these, 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 these sort of overstated um, sort of triumphs of marketing over substance. Yeah, it makes me think of the term analysis paralysis. Exactly. Yeah, and I have clients who will come to me and, you know, they'll say, I tried Weight Watcher, I tried keto, my friend did intermittent fasting, and they have all these things that they feel like work for other people or they've read about or they've been targeted by on Facebook ads. And then it becomes so much harder to take that first small action because you have no idea what it is you should be doing that actually works. That's absolutely correct. And I think the other thing about information, about myths, is context. Context Mm. matters. There's short-term, medium-term, and long-term. It doesn't matter whether we're thinking about the environment or whether we're thinking about diet. So part of the reason that we see, and diet's a tricky one because there's so many vested interests in diet, and it also is complicated. People have enormous preferences and conditioning, but the bottom line that I see is this. Without thinking about short-term, medium-term, and long-term, it's easy to be hijacked by a short-term fad diet and you would know that mm-hmm. definitely. so there's a great example where people who could go on a fair diet of fasting or of keto or of anything and 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 they had to, they're not looking at the longer term either consequences or real longer term sustainability um, and certainly now with the american heart association there's incredibly interesting evidence now that when you move to towards um, a Mediterranean diet, for example, that you can literally stop the impact of chronic illness. So you, mm. if, and this is not my view, this is people like Dean Ornish and others who, who have got incredible evidence that with um, stress reduction and the right kind of exercise and diet like the Mediterranean, you and this other diet's called the DASH diet, which is the brain-based version of the Mediterranean, but it's similar. Um, that and 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 connection, like just good social connection, that you can that you can reverse chronic illness. But just to complete the issue of information about food, there's also um, and of course I have to just repeat that I am biased now because I am a vegan. Um, but if you take not my opinion, but if people want to look up. Um, Professor Kim uh, Williams, who's the ex-president uh, of the American Society of Cardiologists. And, you know, he simply says there are two kinds of cardiologists, those who are vegan and those who read the literature. Uh, there's serious, serious evidence that um, there are challenges to, um, to, to what we eat in processed food and especially animal processed foods. But there's also incredible um, power in plant-based foods. I mean, I think, I know for myself, when I was a medical student, I was given tremendously inaccurate information that, you know, you can't, you can't get sufficient protein or quality of protein from plants. And I frankly was, did not even like vegetables, to be honest. Mm. And it's taken me years of science and of um, information distillation to look at the power of plant-based medicine. And so the bottom line is that in looking at long-term, whether it's Mediterranean or whether it's plant-based, you can see, so for example, Dean Ornish now says, 
that Mediterranean diets will stop the, 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 the damage of chronic illness, but they will not reverse. But with plant-based diet, the evidence, I believe he says, and I could be wrong, that's my understanding of his, what he's saying, is that plant-based diets can reverse actual mm. chronic illness. But anyway, whatever it is, whether it's diet or whether it's exercise, listen, look and read it numerous people rather than one person like myself or or people who have biases themselves as I do now um, or people who have got but people who have databases like Total Brain and look at the data coming out of Total Brain for mental health um, for habits for what it you know we've got like 50 tools on Total Brain that people can look at to train their their positivity their stress meditation they need broken thinking uh, and see for yourself. It's, you know, the evidence will tell you, you'll know quickly what's working in my personal view, 60 seconds. Mm. And, and then, and then lastly to answer a very important answer about myths is look, there are scientists who are, who, you know, if you look at it, like environment, for example, 97% of scientists agree with, with the damage that humans are doing to expedite, to increase, accelerate the damage to the planet. But there are 3% of scientists who disagree. They will have, so you, you need to decide, you know, who are you going to actually look at? Is it going to be the balance of evidence? Or do you have the sort of personality type that may want to have self-confirmation bias and look at the 3%? That is just a personal choice, but at least the information, the way we approach information, I think just to sort of share and the journey, we're all the same, we all share and are challenged by the same issues to share with each other, you know, that sort of balance of evidence rather than the vested interest kind of marketing industry type of uh, hijack information. And that's, that's the challenge that we all face as individuals. I certainly know I've had tremendous challenges in, in my own stress levels over the years in, in doing what I do. And, and I, I, you know, every day I learn how it's, you know, it's, it's personal choice, it's context matters. So that's my mm. view about, about the myths. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful for all that you shared with us today, especially in terms of habit change. I know it's going to be very useful information for my audience. I have a final question I ask each of my guests, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Well, that's a great first question to ask, a last question to ask. To me, it is just simply, it means uh, seeing the value of the power of one. Very concise. Maybe the most concise answer anyone's ever given, but so powerful in that way. Where can listeners follow and find you? Oh, that's a kind question. I mean, essentially, um, I, I am, uh, you know, a founder of totalbrain.com forward slash consumer trial if they want to see what myself and many scientists around the world have done. But for me personally, I also run the Total Brain podcast and it's on, it's just really interviewing key opinion leaders for 30 minutes about how things work. And then um, my, my private website is drevian.gordon.com and there are various sort of videos and stuff and increasingly podcasts. Uh, there's a podcast about the book that uh, my last book, hopefully that I'll be doing, which is called the brain from knowing to doing. So that'll be on that, on that link of uh, the, the, the drevian.com link. Awesome. I'll put all of those links in the show notes. Talk about really training your brain 
I feel like writing a book must involve the most. Yeah, well, I try to just summarize it and keep it super simple. Again, the last version of the book yeah. will be coming out in about eight weeks. But, but lastly, but, but I, uh, you know, I just invite people to go to totalbrain.com forward slash consumer trial. And really the essence of a framework and everything we've discussed today is there if you'd like to try it. I love that. Well, thank you again so much for giving us your time and all of your valuable insights today. And thank you so much, Brooke, for what you do. And I look forward to sharing uh, in the future. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.